Hello. Welcome to Are You Karate Kidding Me? We are a recap podcast covering Cobra Kai, The Karate Kid, news and information from all around the Miyagi-verse. Colin Canada. I am Jenny Carlson, and we love The Karate Kid and Cobra Kai. We do love The Karate Kid and Cobra Kai, and we're very excited for the new season of Cobra Kai, which continues to get even closer, just a couple of weeks now away by the time you hear this episode, and we are very excited. As part of the marketing push, the official Cobra Kai account and cast are asking us to pick a side, and I noticed that you tweeted on our behalf that that Cobra Kai versus Miyagi-Do was like Slytherin versus Gryffindor that we were team Miyagi-Do all the way. I don't think there's anything controversial about those statements. I feel like Miyagi-Do versus Cobra Kai is definitely the American equivalent of Gryffindor versus Slytherin, for sure. I mean, that's fair. I love characters on both sides of this divide, yes. but I do have a Miyagi-Do mug. Very much so, and we both have the Miyagi-Do headbands and our own Tenaguis, so we're... We're firmly representing Miyagi-Do. There are plenty of people out there who can represent Cobra Kai, and I'm sure a lot of people enjoy the flash and the glamour and the... And And the the, big uh, scary snake. Yeah, and the big scary snake, but, you know, at what cost, you know? Well, Uh, that remains to be seen. That's what we're about to find out. Yes, exactly. Well, that's why I compare it to Slytherin. It's like, yes, Harry Potter fans will insist that there were some good kids who happened to be assigned House Slytherin, and maybe that will also hold true uh, for Cobra Kai. We'll just have to see. I mean, Draco Malfoy was redeemed, and in the end, your house didn't matter as much as what you did when push came to shove, right? Exactly. So I'm on the side of karate and the American way. Well, no. Let me be more clear. I'm on the side of karate and justice. And balance. Balance. Exactly. I mean... Balance in all things. I could start talking about how the light side and the dark side need to be reconciled, but then we would be doing a Star Wars podcast. That's right. And there are already five billion of them, and that's why we don't do a Star Wars podcast. We do a Cobra Kai slash Karate Kid podcast, although we're very liberal with our Star Wars joke supply. It's true. So... Let us begin Cobra Kai episode eight, Molting. I just said that episode seven was one of my least favorite episodes, but actually episode eight fills me with the same heart pain and cringing that episode seven does. So let's delve into the angst together, shall we? Yes, let's jump right into Cobra Kai episode eight, Molting. Molting. So we open on a junkyard where Johnny is presiding over a, I guess, a Cobra Kai-sanctioned field trip. But Johnny has some admittedly unconventional training ideas. He's wearing a red jacket. He looks like the Johnny Lawrence of old. He's wearing a red jacket. He's got his black headband. He's drinking a Coors Banquet, and he's standing on top of a defunct bus that says All-Star Kids Academy, which I Googled, and there are multiple All-Star Kids Academies, including one in Georgia where it's a shot. So he is leading them in some cheers, some military-style call and responses, basically about how they're going to become badass. They're a little green still. Johnny has definitely got a situation where he needs to get these bad news bears into a, well, I guess he needs to make them into the badass news bears. Um, there is 
there could be nothing more awesome than what I'm seeing of these kids smashing the crap out of old cars with sledgehammers and throwing shit out of windows like David Letterman, but with a mohawk. Johnny definitely knows how to appeal to kids. There's two things kids love. It's field trips and careless vandalism. And so this this field trip's got it all until Johnny, much like a few episodes ago where he threw Miguel hands tied into a pool, he's thrown these kids into a junkyard with starving guard dogs, or at least that's the implication. He's thrown them to the wolves. He gave them pieces of meat and then called the dog Exactly. Whistle. He released the hounds on the... Uh, on those poor Cobra Kai kids. Uh, but we'll have to see how they fare later because uh, we cut back to the LaRusso manse where Grandma Lucille is here. That's right. As the doorbell rings, Sam is looking at some happy pictures of her and Miguel. We can tell their relationship is progressing nicely. And they run to the door to find Lucille, who is played by the great Randy Heller, also Mrs. Blankenship from Mad Men. At any rate, so Randy Heller's back. We get to hear hear her refer to Ralph Macchio's eyes as baby browns. The great thing is all these actors from Karate Kid reprising their roles. And really, for them, it feels like no time has passed. She has not changed a bit. And indeed, she is mad as hell that the Cobra Kai's are on the rise. She and Daniel are talking smack about them. and Tell them how they pushed you down that hill. Well, they've already heard it, Mom. And we find out that Daniel's been exaggerating some of the sufferings that he went through at their hands. I thought it was a cliff. Nonetheless, everyone is in agreement that the Cobra Kais are the worst. Exactly. Not only does Lucille have the energy to diss the Cobra Kais, she also has the attention span to notice that Amanda has brought store-bought salad or store-bought pasta salad, or something like that, to their poolside picnic. And she can throw shit on that, because as a single mom, she not only worked, she also cooked. Lucille takes the opportunity to throw some shade on Amanda and heighten some tensions around the LaRusso table. For all the LaRusso's resources and their position in life, they really don't have a much more functional family than Johnny does. As the tension builds between Lucille and Amanda, and it's all back and forth, we see that Sam is kind of freaked out by Daniel's dislike of the Cobra Kai's because, as she says, What if Cobra Kai's changed? I mean, there's some kids from my school who are in it, and that doesn't automatically make them bad, right? Daniel's like, Cobra Kai will never change. Promise me you stay away from the kids who are associated with it. Which is a problem, given that Sam is already together with Miguel. Yeah, for sure. We've got a classic West Side Story in the making here. During this weenie roast, we get the complete info dump on the Cobra Kais, why they're bad, why Sam should stay away from them. Louie wants revenge on the Cobra Kais. He wants revenge on Johnny, even though all Johnny did was, like, get his car repaired there. The very act of bringing back Cobra Kai has Louie coming in hot. But as Claire Danes once said, How which we call a rose by any other word would smell as sweet. This is the problem. Miguel and Sam are into each other, but they don't even have a chance. No. Because their families, well, their houses are at odds. Their two houses at odds and- in Reseda, uh, <laughs> in Los Angeles. <laughs> In the Sanford, never mind. We'll figure it out. We'll Yeah, we'll workshop it. But suffice it to say, we see that it's not just the LaRussos who have an issue with Cobra Kai. Cobra Kai has an issue with the LaRussos because yes. Miguel has been hitting the, the punching dummy, the, the classic Cobra Kai punching dummy, who probably has a name. I just don't remember. 
he gets a text and Johnny's like, what's going on? And he's, and Miguel's like, oh, my girlfriend sent me this picture. And Johnny sees the picture and recognizes Samantha LaRusso from the car wreck that he had and from the fact that she's Daniel LaRusso's daughter. This is all earlier in the season. Mm -hmm. He's like, you're dating a LaRusso? Yes, all the pieces of the blueprint are falling into place for sure. Uh, During Miguel's solo training with Johnny, Johnny manages to scope out that you know he's been seeing sam johnny decides to have one of his distinctly johnny lawrence style heart to hearts with miguel they go out and sit on the stoop outside the cobra kai dojo and johnny gets the complete info dump on the events of karate kid one johnny could have saved miguel the trouble and just directed him to our podcast but johnny's an 80s guy so he's probably not hip to uh, all that stuff there they sit on the edge of the parking lot with Johnny drinking his banquet, and I believe Miguel is drinking a nice frothy Coke, talking about Johnny's Johnny's glory days. Yeah. And the story begins not with Daniel LaRusso, but with the first time that Johnny saw Allie, when he and his friends were harassing Allie and her friends at the movie theater, and Dutch, i.e. Chad McQueen, was throwing popcorn at the women, which is what you do, because as Johnny explains to Miguel, Because it's an alpha move, man. Babes love when you treat them like crap. Johnny confusing that idea that any kind of attention is good attention delivers some very bad advice to Miguel. Uh, he recounts the entirety of Karate Kid 1, but from Johnny's unique perspective, which I thought was a fun touch. But then Daniel LaRusso came to town. Next thing I know, he's hitting on her. I see the two of them flirting with each other. I walked over to have a civil conversation with Alan, but LaRusso kept butting it. He says they were madly in love. Indeed. And he talks about her as, as a firecracker. I mean, what's funny is that he says babes love when you treat him like crap. But in reality, what he liked about Allie was that she stood up for her friends. Like, she dumped popcorn on top of Dutch. Like, she didn't take it, and that's what he was attracted to. They hit a bump in the road. Johnny doesn't talk about what that bump in the road is. I'm hoping someday we'll find out that it's because Cobra Kai's darker side began to get to him. He assumed they were on a break. We were on a break! Okay? As we know from watching The Karate Kid that Allie was done with Johnny. And then here comes interloper Daniel LaRusso. And as Johnny is telling Miguel this story, the most sympathetic audience he could possibly have, the sort of Mark Knopfler, Dire Straits style music plays. Like you can hear Johnny's longing in his quest mm-hmm. in, the, in the soundtrack. And from Johnny's perspective, he explains, as we see all these flashbacks. You know, I figured that was that. LaRusso wouldn't leave it alone. Like Daniel's the one who sprayed water on him at Halloween. Daniel did all this terrible stuff, like took his girl. And in fact, when Johnny went to retaliate, Daniel had his own karate master who kicked the crap out of him. So for Johnny, Daniel was the guy who made everything go wrong. Johnny's not wrong. This is definitely the point where <laughs> where things started to go wrong for him. It's just the uh, the idea that from his perspective, it was Daniel who wouldn't let up. Again, the idea of persistence. When the persistence is coming from the other person, it's unwelcome attention. When the persistence is coming from you, it's determination. (laughs) That's it. So we see these flashbacks. We see the flashback to the tournament, again, from Johnny's perspective. Miguel's like, what happened? He's like, I lost. And Miguel's so pissed. Like, you can tell Sholomardo is selling it so hard that Miguel is enraged on Johnny's behalf. And Johnny says, but what's worse is not that I lost the tournament. What's worse is that I lost Allie. So for Johnny, it's personal. It's not even about the tournament. Like, Johnny is clear that he cares more about people than karate, but his ego with karate always gets in the way. But Johnny's not the only one with an ego because 
back, back at, at the, the Russo Mance. We're sitting around the table and... Daniel is talking about how much he misses Mr. Miyagi, and he and Lucille are talking about how wonderful Mr. Miyagi was to them. And Louie comes in with this harebrained scheme to start selling high-end motorcycles out of the dealership because of some bikers he met in Vegas. A never-ending font of bad ideas, Louie, is telling a story about he was at a seedy event in a seedy place, talking to some seedy guys, and they... And all it is is to establish that Louie knows some troublemaking bikers. Of course, Daniel and Amanda think it's a terrible idea. You know, Lucille jumps up to defend Louie. Because he's family, she says. The idea that any sort of criticism is a, a strike against the family. And this just reignites the already, already simmering tensions between Amanda and... And Lucille, daughter-in-law and mother-in-law, mm-hmm. and we see that everyone begins to fight. Things are not happy. But meanwhile, back at, what is the name of this apartment complex? Receda Flats, where both Johnny and Miguel live. Johnny's driven them back, and there's Carmen, Miguel's mom, inviting Johnny to dinner. Yeah, so things are definitely looking up for Johnny, uh, as all he had planned was an evening of uh, Hot Pockets and probably more Coors Banquet. Uh, but instead, don't, com- don't forget the Iron Eagle. Of course, who could forget the Iron Eagle? <laughs> and so Carmen absolutely insists that Johnny join them for dinner. They have a very charming time where Johnny gets a, uh, a primer on intersectionality. Yeah, I mean, here's the deal. Like, you can tell that compare and contrast with the LaRusso dinner. This is just Carmen, her mom, Rosa, Miguel. Uh, and Johnny, and they're praying, they all get along. You know, Johnny is a bit of an idiot. Mm, I really like these bananas. They're called plantains. Oh, in English we call them bananas. You know, Billy Zabka plays this clueless but well-intentioned, somewhat patronizing white guy to a T. He and Carmen are talking, and it's obvious that he's very, it's reaching his heart, even though he doesn't quite know how to react. But Miguel gets a message or a call. It's his girlfriend. So he goes in the other room to take it. Miguel gets that mid-meal text from Sam. And his mom, Carmen, being quite lenient, allows him to go take it so that they get some one-on-one time with Johnny, I'm assuming. But they're going to FaceTime Miguel and Sam or do whatever the Android equivalent of that is. Mm-hmm. And Sam is calling Miguel because she's like so frustrated. It's World War Three at her house. And they're trying to figure out when they can see each other again. And Sam's like stressed out. And Miguel is busy practicing for the big tournament. And already we see the seeds of doubt being sown from either side, right? Sam wants to know why Miguel has to train so hard. and Sam wants to encourage Miguel to ditch Cobra Kai altogether. Sam is like, there's a bunch of other dojos in the valley. I don't know, maybe give a different dojo a try? And Miguel's like, no, I could never do that to Sensei Lawrence. Meanwhile, Daniel runs into because Daniel can't manage his own family's emotions. He has to get his daughter to do the emotional labor. Runs in to try to get Sam to come back outside and referee. And Sam, you know, he says, who are you talking to? And Sam's like, nobody. Yeah. And of course, that affects Miguel because it just triggers this sense that there's nothing good about Daniel LaRusso. There's nothing good about the LaRussos in general. Like, this is something is rotten in the state of Denmark. I was going to say something similar. It's a very cool, like, during this FaceTime, we shift perspective from Miguel to Sam. And when Daniel interrupts Sam, she quickly sweeps Miguel under the rug 
while Miguel is on the line, which, of course, is uh, pretty disheartening for him. Exactly. Meanwhile, back at the discussion between Johnny and Carmen and Rosa, they've already talked about that Carmen's worried about that Miguel might get hurt, and Johnny's like... At least not permanently. It's typical Johnny. But the other thing that happens is that it comes out that they're there in the U.S. because Carmen had to leave where they were in Ecuador because Miguel's father's a very bad man. He was in a very, like, a dirty business or a bad business. Of course, my spidey sense says that it's probably Terry Silver from Karate Kid Part 3. I know. (laughs) (laughs) We don't know that. My head canon says, though, that it's Terry Silver. I can't wait to find that out. Maybe, maybe. Probably definitely Terry Silver's henchman, for sure. Somebody with, yeah. Exactly. So, you know, in explaining that, you can tell that Johnny is sorry that he brought it up and he's like sorry to hear that he's anticipating a shame response because he i think has a lot of shame and carmen says back don't be sorry you can let the mistakes of the past determine your future and that really affects him we see him reflecting like this whole sequence with with johnny we get to really see him run the gamut it starts off very fun but it quickly resolves itself in a very real place I can't wait to see how this relationship between Johnny and Carmen and even Johnny and Carmen and Miguel evolve as the series goes on. Meanwhile, back at the LaRusso Mance the next day, Robbie arrives to do some karate with Mr. LaRusso and instead sees a vision laying on the pool furniture beside the pool. That would be Sam in her bathing suit. And Robbie's like, whoa. Whoa. So taken is he that he tries to pivot and go back, but... Just like Daniel LaRusso before him collides. He crashes headlong into those wind chimes. Probably the exact same wind chimes that Mr. Miyagi owned. It's it's a big tell. And then here comes Daniel to introduce his former student, Sam, to his current student, Robbie. Yeah, so it's a a real meet-cute situation between Sam and Robbie. Robbie is... Well, Robbie sure hopes it is. I think it's pretty obvious the show wants us to feel that way, too. Robbie's spending so much of the first half of this season being, you know, either cool, collected, or angry. Uh, We suddenly find him in a place where he's definitely more vulnerable, definitely more sensitive. And so what do we do with that newfound sensitivity? Well, we head out to the woods. They're driving to the woods because that's where Daniel goes to train now, I guess. Climate change has caused the reservoir to dry up. Also, off-camera, they're shooting this in Georgia, so they have the lovely park surrounding Stone Mountain that they can shoot at, which is where they filmed the sequence. Daniel explains to Robbie that this is what Miyagi-Do Karate is all about, like focusing in nature, you know, fighting your balance, basically, we'll learn. So they're out there walking, listening to the sound of nothing. Meanwhile, as they find a good spot to set up to train, Johnny's been busy. Johnny has really done a bang-up job cleaning up his apartment. He's been to Costco, got himself a nice flat screen. Uh, He digs through the refrigerator uh, considering his Coors banquet. And he opts for the Sunny D, as you obviously should. And because he's chosen to drink vitamin C rather than beer, he's sober enough to make it to the end of Iron Eagle, just showing on his flat screen and we learned that Chappie looked like Chappie was dying when Johnny was weeping in front of Iron Eagle the last time he watched it. But no, Chappie's back. He made it. So Johnny might make it too. Cut back out to the beautiful Southern California knee Georgia wilderness where Robbie and Daniel are just 
burning it up doing their kata and it culminates in daniel doing some advanced miyagi-do where daniel has the exact same catcher's outfit that mr miyagi had and he's teaching robbie to do the one inch punch uh made famous by the original karate kid and also kill bill focus power (laughs) that's right yeah and there's a beautiful sequence here as daniel and robbie in unison are doing their kata and the music is playing from when in the moment in the karate kid when daniel's really preparing for the tournament after he's learned about mr miyagi's hardship and the loss of his wife and he goes out and trains on his own and it's the same music that's playing there this beautiful bill conti music and it looks like they're done but no daniel has one more big lesson to teach robbie and that's about finding his balance he has a lesson for robbie about literally finding his balance by balancing up on a big log robbie says that he knows how to balance from his skateboard but daniel has a more philosophical approach it's about balance in his life because as daniel knows growing up without a dad is a really hard thing so in this moment we learn that robbie's confided enough in daniel that daniel knows that robbie doesn't have a dad he doesn't know it seems who robbie's dad is but he knows that robbie has some baggage and in that moment too robbie's like I have something I have to tell you because he knows that this is not going to end well if Daniel finds out that Robbie's Johnny's son. But Daniel's just so earnest and it's been such a good day. It looks like that Robbie just can't bring himself to tell Daniel the truth. So instead he climbs on the log. Yeah, Robbie could have really saved himself some trouble by telling Daniel, but instead he had a flashback to a moment of shame he had where he spied Miguel uh, hugging Johnny outside the Cobra Kai dojo when Miguel got his gi for the first time. And uh, Robbie hops up on that log. He gives balance a try. He does a pretty good job balancing at first, but then when he tries to spin kick, he just flings himself clean off the log and onto the ground. And Daniel's only real advice is to... You get back up and you try it again. Uh, he's going to go see if he can find a good Wi-Fi reception. The Devils are playing the Islanders on the East Coast. But Daniel walks off to watch a hockey game, and that's his equivalent of Mr. Miyagi dressed up in his Hawaiian shirt going out probably to the Senior Citizen Center. <laughs> oh, that's true, yeah. Meanwhile, Miguel, Aisha, and Hawk are at the movies. Hawk throwing the popcorn, as he probably learned from Miguel, chicks dig. And Miguel is confiding that he's just, it's really gotten to him, this idea about the LaRussos and, and that his sensei has this beef with Sam's dad. And Aisha and Hawk are both kind of, they have more perspective about it. Like, they're like, that's not your problem. And and Aisha's like, I'm so sensei and Sam's dad have some beef. What's that to do with you? At any rate, they advise Miguel to just go over there and say hi and introduce himself rather than sitting there and stewing about it. During this exchange, Hawk finally flings his popcorn debris at the wrong person who causes a dude in the front row to get up. Who the hell did that? Hawk quickly puts his hands down. That's where we cut back to the wilderness where Robbie has now finally gotten pretty good at balancing up on that log. So he goes to tell Daniel about his hard work, but Daniel is balancing on a whole nother level. Daniel is trying to balance on one hand so he can execute what he tells Robbie is... The most powerful kick in Miyagi-Do karate. And indeed, he was upside down. This looks a little bit like when, when Luke Skywalker is upside down on The Empire Strikes Back. Yes, Jedi's strength flows from the Force. But it's also so like next level cornball in terms of special powers that it reminds me of CGI Yoda's lightsaber duel against Count Dooku in Attack of the Clones. It's just that side of like, really? 
But again, Ralph Macchio can sell me anything, so I buy it. Hook, line, and sinker. Well, first of all, let me thank you for doing our due diligence and having our obligatory Star Wars reference for this episode. Yes! Second of all, I guess I should probably take this opportunity to mention a bonsai tree. Bonsai tree. But third of all, this mystical kick, this isn't the crane kick, this isn't the drum technique, this is now a new third amazing Miyagi-Do technique that's going to get us out of a jam, uh, I'm sure, by the final act of this Cobra Kai series. It's so funny because if that's the most powerful kick in Miyagi-Do and they're already telling us, I'm not sure where else they can go from here, but I, I accept it. And I like, we've seen Robbie going from cool kid, totally unfazed, to being like, Mr. LaRusso? <laughs> when he sees Daniel upside down on that rock. Kudos to Tanner Buchanan for showing this character evolving in ways that are surprising. And again, it makes me wonder, like, because he's a stand-in for Johnny, if Johnny had done Miyagi-Do, and trying to imagine how Johnny Lawrence would sound if he became that bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. Maybe we'll find out. Maybe. Uh, I mean, we've got to up the ante somehow, right? So that's... That's a great way. We see that Daniel and Robbie have learned important lessons. At least Robbie has. Mm-hmm. And now we cut to a, a house we remember from a flashback in episode six when Johnny as a child is sitting around the dinner table with his mom and stepdad. And again, now Sid in present day is played by Ed Asner. He's sitting there at the head of the table just like he did when Johnny was a kid. Uh, barking at his caregiver and getting cream cheese on his face from his bagel. And Johnny walks in, and of course, Sid assumes that Johnny's there to ask for money, but that's not what he's there for. No, this time Han Solo has Java's money, and he slides a a fresh envelope full of cash across the table. Johnny has plenty of money and plenty of pride in the bank at this point, and he's more than willing to divest himself from Sid and his obligations to his stepfather. And the symbol for that is for him to pay back Sid all the money that he's ever loaned Johnny uh, over the years. And Sid tries to browbeat him and you know, pull him back into their web of bullying. But Johnny's saying, you need my money. And Johnny said, I never needed your money. It's just the only thing you had to give. That's a great moment when Johnny walks out with a little smile on his face, knowing that he's free of that, that obligation and that shame that he carried around. Two major wins in a row for Johnny, uh, two episodes back to back. It's pretty good times for Johnny. And back at the LaRusso mans, it looks like it's pretty good time for, for the LaRussos as Lucille and Amanda have patched up their differences everybody's started popping bottles uh we've got wine all over the place which i'm sure also helped and uh robbie has come back with daniel and daniel's invited robbie to dinner which is unfortunate because miguel then pulls up outside on his bike ready to reintroduce himself to sam and to the entire larusso family but what's this he hears some commotion coming from the backyard. There's everyone sitting happily around the table by the pool. There's Sam talking to this kid, and it looks like she's flirting with him. They get along great. And by the way, this is the first time I've ever seen Robbie so happy as a character. Everyone's getting along. We are suddenly back in the Karate Kid at the moment when Daniel LaRusso is trying to find Ali at the Encino Hills Country Club and gets spaghetti all over him. Miguel, even though no one sees him, is humiliated and retreats. It's a mirror of exactly what happened at that country club. Jerry Weintraub would be very sad that Fascination was not playing at that Oh, indeed. Um, And yeah, we go from 
Miguel's emotional defeat back over to Johnny's apartment where Johnny is struggling with some emotions of his own. A, a moment ago, he kind of reconciled things with Sid, and I think, you know, much like he straightened up his apartment and straightened up his relationship with Sid, he wants to straighten up his relationship with Robbie as well. So he's trying his best to write Robbie a letter. Johnny really, he only has two pictures in his house. One is that framed picture of his mom from the 80s. And the other one is Robbie's childhood soccer photo that we saw in the early episodes of the show that he had on his Mm -hmm. fridge. And that's all he has of Robbie. And he has it there sitting on his table. And he's writing this letter. And he says, you know, in voiceover, he explains that he's writing this letter because Robbie refuses to answer his calls and he refuses to text or whatever. Like, they won't meet each other halfway in the media that are available to them. So he's writing this letter, you know, he's made mistakes in his life, but his biggest mistake is what he allowed his relationship with Robbie to become. Mm-hmm. So we've seen Johnny sort of level up, right? Like level one, he cleaned his house. He's not letting the mistakes of the past determine his future. Level two, he was already self-sufficient and didn't need Sid, but he went and, you know, put a button on that and was like, nope, we're done. But now level three is like the real boss fight for Johnny is this is my real vulnerability. I love my son and I have no relationship with him. So he's trying to reach out and he would have finished that letter, but for a noise outside. Johnny alone in his apartment hears a noise outside and quickly goes out to investigate because that it's quite a commotion because it looks like Louie and some of the biker thugs previously established are really taking it to Johnny's uh, beloved Firebird. Now we see that Louie, who just seemed like a dog's body, like a convenient Shakespearean element of comic relief, actually has been setting up a plot point this whole time as he and his biker buddies that he met in Vegas are there to teach Johnny Lawrence and Cobra Kai a lesson by beating the crap out of that Firebird that Louie's been fixated on ever since Daniel fixed it for free. Louie just thought they were going to be like beating the shit out of the Firebird but no, the biker dude has gasoline when Louie's trying to stop him when Johnny comes out and rightly begins kicking the tar out of the biker. It's not just one guy. It's like multiple dudes. And Louie looks on like, oh, I have bitten off more than I can chew here. Louie is desperately trying to teach Johnny a lesson. But oh, ho, ho! as we know from many episodes of Cobra Kai, Johnny refuses to be taught lessons. <laughs> and so he is able to quickly dispatch the bikers with some excellent display of Cobra Kai karate. Johnny then, very Batman-like, tries to get Daniel's address out of Louie. Where are they? Encino Hills and Escalon Drive. He tells him the street. He doesn't tell him the house number. So Johnny's got a little bit of a challenge ahead of him, but I'm sure given the sheer amount of rage he's feeling at this moment, having seen his newly repaired Firebird go up in flames, Johnny will search all night and lie in wait as soon as he finds Daniel LaRusso's Tony Mansion. Uh, He doesn't get the exact address, but it's close enough for a TV show. One of the bikers that he left on the ground decides to take it out on Johnny by flinging a lighter into his gasoline-laden car. Hey, asshole! Burn in hell. Setting it ablaze. Johnny grabs one of the biker's bikes, and you know, this also puts Johnny back on a bike out for revenge, just like he was back in the original Karate Kid, and roars off, presumably, to find Daniel and settle things once and for all. Indeed, that's it for episode eight, a.k.a. Molting. I have to say that this is the most, this is the moment at which I was most grateful that YouTube gave us all the episodes at once. 
because that was that my heart almost burst out of my chest when it became clear that Johnny was about to go hunting for Daniel. It's the moment that the show has been promising us for the entire season so far. And of course, they're going to save it for pretty much the climax of the series. And so why is this episode called Molting? That is a great question. I think it's because this is a moment where a lot of the characters, Robbie, Johnny, maybe even Miguel a little bit, like they kind of they kind of shed their skin and they become they shed their loser they skin. They shed their loser skin. They become <laughs> they become more comfortable in their newfound identities, I guess. Uh, Miguel, his newfound identity is badass. Certainly the other Cobra Kai kids are very happy where they are right now, you know, provided they aren't being chased by wild dogs, I suppose. (laughs) You know, and Robbie's definitely uh, happier in his new position, even though he is going to have to come to an uncomfortable truth with Daniel eventually. Yeah, I mean, the thing about this is that the person who molts the most in this is Robbie. I think we see him, you know, go from one kind of, one kind of kid to another. Tanner Buchanan pulls that off extremely well. We see also that that Johnny is molting, right? And I was thinking about this while watching this episode, that this, this show has multiple protagonists and multiple POV characters. But really, like, it's Johnny and Robbie's journey together that it's their soul that we're most worried about. Like, once Daniel got his groove back, I wasn't worried about his soul. You know, I was worried about his temper or his health or that... You know, maybe Johnny's going to go kick his ass now. But, like, in terms of souls, I, at this point in the show, am not worried about Miguel's soul. I'm worried about Johnny and Robbie's souls. That may change. And so it's really interesting to see both those guys, because of fateful dinners with families they've chosen or will are in the process of choosing, will find maybe more self-acceptance or new hope for their life. That's how it looks at the end of this episode, or that's how it looked at least until Louis rolled in with his biker pals. Louis, damn you. He is the worst, but I mean, honestly, it's so well done because in the beginning you're like, oh yeah, it's a reference to Uncle Louis. That's that's funny and kind of harmless. And now it's like, oh no, man, Uncle Louis' son is the spawn of Satan. Louis is, is purpose-built to ruin everyone's day. Like from, from bean to cup, he fucks up. Indeed. Thank you for that thick of it reference. Oh, you're welcome. It's so great to see Ed Asner. It's so nice to see that reprise of his dynamic with Johnny and Johnny to find closure with that. There are so many lovely moments in this episode with Randy Heller coming back as Lucille and all this heightening going on around the characters and how everyone has the best of intentions. It's obvious. Like Miguel wants to support Johnny. That's one reason why he gets so upset about Johnny's loss to Daniel is like, he's loyal. Like these are, these are things to be praised, but you can also see that something can quickly go awry because of these loyalties that are not qualified by the fuller story. Yeah. Like the, the sequence, the training sequences are so great from Johnny's tough love. I love the training to Daniel's finding your balance. There couldn't be a stronger juxtaposition except that like Johnny's Cobra Kai training seems so much less terrifying than, than John Kreese's Cobra Kai training. I mean, it brings up a, a great question, is that is any of this stuff stuff that Johnny could have possibly gotten from from Kreese? And, 
and and hopefully season two will answer more of those questions because it's like yeah it's like johnny's doing some like he threw miguel into a pool hands tied he literally let the dogs loose on the cobra kai kids in in this episode and you know presumably it's all in the name of teaching them to toughen up but like was any of this required for johnny it's an interesting question and i hope it's a question we get an answer to you know incidentally while we're here i think it's been a while since we've been on an easter egg hunt and in addition to the ones we already mentioned i had a couple number one um Ooh, okay yeah number one i think i might have said this in the first in the first episode of cobra kai but in case i didn't pretty sure iron eagle is there for stan zabka billy zabka's dad because he was an ad on that movie secondly when they're going towards the big fallen tree the log on which robbie will find his balance robbie notes that he felt like jackie chan which is also a reference to the non-miyagi verse karate kid movie Oh, with, yes. With Jackie and Jaden Smith. Ah, very interesting indeed. Yeah. So I suppose within the realm of the Miyagi-verse, it is possible that there is a Karate Kid movie starring Jackie Chan and Jaden Smith, and they just and nobody has any knowledge that there was an 80s version. Oh, my God. That's like the pocket dimension in Johnny Lawrence's suitcase. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Like you said, great training sequences. A lot of it was done to kind of mirror the same sequences from Karate Kid 1, which were all very gorgeously shot and well choreographed. And and these were done equally as... There was just as much care given to these, I feel. It's a different environment, obviously, but it's still done in the same spirit, and you can definitely tell. There's a little ironic moment during the dinner with Miguel's family. I think that the grandma's prayer, I didn't catch all of it because it was in Spanish, but I think she appeals to a merciful God. Like to God of Mercy, which uh-huh. which would not jive with Johnny, perhaps, but yet the affect of it reached him, even if the words might have alienated him if he spoke any languages aside from English, which I guarantee he does not. Uh, and yet, this is the episode where Johnny Lawrence learns a little something about intersectionality, and I think that's great. wait. How do you mean that he's learning about intersectionality? Like there was no like high status or low status in that interaction in the same way that maybe sam and miguel have like a high status low status trade-off you know during their their scenes in the previous episodes i think i would say maybe more than intersectionality like johnny actually has an interaction with people who have a visibly and and drastically different story than he does yeah, an experience outside his own. I, I guess that's what I meant by that. But it's interesting because in that scene, Carmen or someone asks where he grew up or what his story is. And he's like, I grew up in Encino. And she's like, really? Really nice houses there. And he's like, uh, well, it's because you live in a nice house doesn't mean nice things are going on inside. That's really interesting to see him have that moment of emotional honesty with people who are so different and to find commonality there. I think that that does a whole lot for Johnny. If, if you place it in the context of just what a casual racist he was in the beginning of the season. Like, this is a new world to him. All right. Well, I think that's all that we can say about molting, but I think that was a really great episode, and I can't wait to come back next week for episode nine, Different But Same. I'm very curious... I wonder what's going through Johnny's mind, and I, I can't wait to talk about what happens when Johnny finds Daniel. All right. Well, uh, until then, I've been Colin Candidate. I've been Jenny Carlson, and we will see you around the Miyagi-verse. See you around the Miyagi-verse.
This podcast has been produced and hosted by Colin Canada and Jenny Carlson. Our music is by Chepo. You can find us online at areyoukaratekiddingme.com and wherever you download podcasts.